Welcome to your number one source for technological innovations, ideas, and strategies for your business. Multiply your business's equations and put the odds in your favor. Now, live from Club ITHQ with your hosts, Ben and Sam, this is Tech Factor. All right, welcome everyone. This is the Tech Factor. Uh, Welcome to episode three of the Tech Factor. This is a podcast about driving business productivity and innovation using technology. I'm Ben. And I'm Sam. And this is... The Tech Factor. As we've already said. So we're talking about different methodologies and approaches to aged care during the COVID pandemic. So this is a, a slightly different approach, but we can also talk about a little bit about technology as well and how it could potentially help. So COVID-19 has forced many industries to drastically change the way that they operate. Aged care in particular has been under a large amount of scrutiny uh, in the media recently, primarily due to cases at the Anglicare New March House, uh, where, over, where over 56 people have been affected by COVID-19, uh, with the facil- facility experiencing now uh, 15 deaths. The infection at New March House started when a staffer worked six, six shifts despite displaying mild coronavirus symptoms. By the time the health officials detected the problem uh, on April 11th, it was too late. So the results of this have uh, seen the majority of aged care facilities completely lock down their facilities, denying residents the ability to see family members and friends, or in some scenarios, enabling limited scheduling appointments via a glass window. So these lockdowns have caused great stress and anxiety for both residents and family members alike, uh, but most facilities insist this is a necessary measure to mitigate against the risk of a resident getting COVID-19. Except we have one facility here today uh, from Ballina, New South Wales, and they're going against the grain with a different approach. To talk about this approach, I'm joined by my special guest this morning, uh, Bruce Twiley from uh, General Manager for St. Andrews Village, Ballina. Uh, Bruce, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and the uh, and St. Andrews. Oh, well, oh, thank you very much, Ben and Sam, for inviting me to this uh, podcast. First of all, uh, St. Andrews Aged Care Facility, which is located in Ballina, it's essentially four business units of... Uh, Residential care is a standalone uh, facility of about 123 beds. We have home care as well in the community, Aboriginal respite care, and also independent living units. So uh, within the residential care, we have two dementia areas, of about 30-plus beds, and it's a not-for-profit charitable status community-based organisation. And it's also located on land adjacent to the Ballina Hospital. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, talking about myself, that's a little bit more difficult, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so some people have no trouble doing that, but uh, yeah, it's uh, look. What, what we might try to do because we can talk a little bit about because I know with some of the questions we talked about, we're going to get into some bit about your background. So we might come into that later. So. Let's talk about St Andrew's approach. So obviously St Andrew's has a unique approach under COVID-19 and can you tell us about the approach and, and why you've chosen a different approach? Yeah, we uh, we had to balance up a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we had to look at protecting our residents, but not only from the virus, but also from, um, from mental health issues. So in the end, we had to, we reviewed both what the federal government and the New South Wales Department of Health uh, recommendations were. But it was really important that we did a a journal search, like of, uh, you know, relevant information about the the SARS-2 virus or the COVID-19, they call it, 
Um, and also look at the regional area in which we're living and see what the number of, uh, like, for instance, number of tests have been done for COVID. Uh, is there a community-acquired uh, uh, COVID happening here? And we had to put all those together. But um, so our approach was, all right, what do we know? What are the facts? And let's, let's start developing uh, some of these uh, strategies. So one of the, it was interesting, one of the first journals I read was on um, uh, uh, deaths in China. And it was interesting that dementia patients had the highest rate of death um, uh, in, in all of the comorbidities, or such as comorbidities, such as like oh, wow. heart, heart issues or renal uh, issues and so forth. So that was an interesting finding. And then I realised that it was really about dementia is more about not the physiological status but the the uh, behavioural issues. Oh, I understand. So that's how you've been able to form the risk assessment, more based around behavioural because that's where the, that develops the inherent COVID risk than necessarily the the virus itself. Yeah, because they're, they don't have that... Uh, ability to practice social distancing and hand hygiene because of the dementia. So that that puts them in a much higher risk category than, say, a resident who is cognitive of those things. So we had two categories here then. So we have our dementia patients, which are high risk, and then we looked at... um, we looked at all the other places that had COVID introduced into them, and majority of those, it was staff who were actually bringing the virus in. So, mm. um, and what I found was with residents, uh, residents' families, they were far more restrictive about coming in um, than, say, a staff member. Because hmm. the problem is with the staff member is they are dependent on that money. Yes. And if they've got this financial pressure, they they tend to sweep things away and say, oh, look, you know, I might be a little bit unwell, but I'm, I'm okay. I'll, I'll just be really careful. And, that, and that's where that risk factor comes in. Whereas a relative... Uh, they, I've had relatives come up to me and say, look, my child had a cough about two days ago. Do you think I should come in? Mm. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, v- a very interesting, um, obviously, you know, the, the, the way that those um, two groups approach it. Obviously, they've got different things that motivate and, and drive them. So I, I guess in terms of the strategy, so, so in summarising the strategy and how you've been able to, to manage that, because obviously the staff is that, that key risk there. I mean, how have you been able to um, to work through that? Well, we it was interesting. We adopted a lot of the strategies that the government came out with um, prior to their announcement. For instance, you know, screening and doing all those things, you know, mm. social distancing and so forth. But really, getting to the the essence of this is that we had to we, we looked at. We'll leave the facility open because we know the, the, the relatives will be quite restricted in, in coming in, because, uh, self-restricting, so to speak. 
The other thing is we'll, we'll, we'll lock down the dementia wards um, um, into lockdown, so prevent visitors, although we did we also looked at that logically and said, well, people who are bed-bound, well, they can have visitors because they, ah, they, yes. those dementia patients would not spread it within the unit, so we allowed visitors to come to them, uh, but they come in and they go straight out again. And then, yes. Yeah. So we've been really looking at it logically and rationally, um, you know, each particular case and, and more recently, we're actually opening it a little bit more because we noticed that our community acquired COVID in this area has, uh, is significantly low. Hmm. So in terms of the, um, the staff, well, that was, that was one of the key drivers. So I put, message, I put several messages out to the staff that if they are financially, um, what would you say, uh, under pressure, yeah, un- yeah, under pressure, uh, and they feel I've got to come to work, I've got to pay this bill. Well, come and see us, and we will support you. Mm. We would much prefer we'll support you, and you know, pay that money up front, whether pay a bill or something like that to relieve their pressure, than having them come in feeling a little bit unwell and uh, potentially infecting, uh, uh, you know, residents. Yeah, residents, yeah. So, and you've got the leave policy there. I can see you're talking about a greater flexibility in your leave policy. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, we, with our leave, if, say, for instance, casual, casuals are probably the most uh, risk uh, for us because they don't have annual leave, they don't have sick leave entitlements. Hmm. So they are under even more pressure. They don't work, they don't get paid. So if they're under financial pressure, they are really going to be, um, uh, you know, pushed. But also with our policy, it's generally you use up your entitlements um, as if you're unwell. But because of this particular situation, uh, we're giving them the freedom of having leave without pay or they can use their entitlement, whereas and, and I, normally they don't have to use their entitlement. And that's one of the things that um, I guess we we were looking at. So in terms of the – because one of the key challenges in aged care is, is rostering. Rostering is always a massive challenge, and I, it's quite clear that, you know, even an organisation like Anglicare, which has numerous locations, you know, they around Sydney, they had massive issues in relation to rostering. So I guess, you know, how have you approached rostering any differently with, with uh, COVID-19? Yeah, rostering, yeah, that's always it's a major issue in any aged care, particularly regional areas as well. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, we've, we've got uh, agencies and we've got a casual pool, but generally that doesn't suffice. Um so we looked at ex- extending shifts if people are willing to do that. Uh, if we had a shortfall, um, we've even done some split shifts. They come in the morning and then they come back in the afternoon. Um, but in essence, we, you know, we've had to look at it in a different way. And 
It's about it's about being flexible and more dynamic with your ice cream. So maybe something might necessarily be the normal way you go about it. Or normally, you would say, "Okay, you've hadn't done enough hours this week," or you sort of you try to you try to be as, as as flexible with it as you possibly can be. If people are obviously, you know, I mean, within within limits, of course, but where people can do more hours, a couple more hours, and you go, "Well, maybe they'd normally be limited to fifteen hours." And you go, "Okay, well, you can, um, that particular staff member can do twenty this week," or or whatever. So just trying to be flexible and dynamic mm. and trying to work with the staff to sort of come up with that um, best optimal solution. That's yes. really what it's about, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's a fallback position that if we if we ever had um, so many staff off um, because of COVID or because of sickness, that we had uh, our care plans would be modified in, in order to prioritise the absolute requirements that the resident needs um, and make sure we did those first and then uh, the other things that uh, we offer also in those care plans, uh, they would come secondary to the absolute requirements. And is there anything particularly unique about Sandra's uh, that enables you to take a different approach? Uh, I think because we're standalone, uh, we don't, have a corporate office as such it mm. is it enables us to make our own decisions here be more fluid yeah yeah uh, and that has its risks because you don't have a greater pool of uh, knowledge and understanding i guess but mm. uh, i think it, our multidisciplinary yeah. team is such that uh, we're able to to do that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and it's something which, I mean, I know the uh, obviously the Age Care Inquiry sort of, you know, touched on a little bit about the size of different facilities and the whole amalgamation of facilities, the fact that you can have, you know, if you can have sustainable independent facilities, that gives you that flexibility to to be more, to be able to react to these types of, types of scenarios much more quickly. You know, you can have a, you know, obviously you don't have all these extra layers of bureaucracy and, and you can be, because in, in the ideal world, I mean, and, and we know in, in business, and I know, Bruce, you've been in other businesses before, uh, you know, you want to be able to be uh, as flexible and dynamic as possible in your business. And so, certainly businesses, some businesses will get to a certain point where they just, they're so large and bulky that and so bureaucratic that you just, you don't have that flexibility to, to, to get things done. And so trying to get that, just that, that perfect size and that balance where you're able to uh, react quickly to to events and in the the world, not just with COVID, but there's all kinds of things in you know technology uh, or in, you know in politics or legislation where things are changing quite rapidly. So to be able to react and and, and adapt and have a a business that can be quite adaptive uh, is obviously a, a strong advantage, and it is a unique advantage that an independent facility uh, will actually have because. Uh, again, you, the big problem is with all this amalgamation that does occur in the aged care industry is that you, you lose a lot of that adaptability. And I think that's a really important point and it's something that does make Zen Energies quite unique in that aspect. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And um, can I also add that we have a, a fantastic board, extremely supportive. <laughs> the best board. <laughs> we have the best. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It is honestly having a supportive board is the difference uh, between a successful business and a not so successful one. You need to have uh, trust and leadership there as well, and that's extremely important. Yeah. So, I, I guess one of the other key things I just want to touch on that we uh, we want to discuss. So, I mean, it, it seems like if you look at the Anglicare example. Uh, 
in the case of infections and effectively, you know, there was and the worst thing you could possibly have in a, in a facility is to lose residents, um, particularly at the scale that they have. You know, then you've got to, they obviously have the issues with their staff to perform duties, the reputational damage. So you can understand obviously why they some of these facilities see the risk as as just too great. So I, I guess we've already touched on it. You obviously are concerned about the risk, but you've taken a, a more of a logical approach to it. That's that's my understanding. Is that right? Yeah, it, it was really almost a scientific approach where we just went off data and information. And like, for instance, uh, someone would question what we're doing. I would go and seek out a journal. Um, mm. For instance, wearing masks, so we had uh, one person come in and tell the reception people, oh, did you know that um, uh, the COVID virus lasts three hours in the air? You should be wearing masks. <laughs> so what I did, I went back and found the journal that they were referring to or the abstract that they were referring to, I sought out the journal, then compared that journal with a previous journal in 2003, which was about SARS-1, and then the only thing that you could deduce uh, from those to that journal was that COVID was more infectious. It, it, it has a higher infectivity and can... Um, or more contagious than the SARS-1 because the three hours in the air wasn't really um, kosher. <laughs> yeah, and that is, it's quite interesting because because it's obviously been such a rapidly changing environment and there's, there's a lot of information out there. It's very hard, and I guess unless you've got a background like yourself, which we'll get into in a minute, to be able to decipher the fact from fiction. And, and the, the, the big thing about this, because there's just been – it's affected the world so dramatically uh, that I think there's a lot of a lot of fear in it, and so people are very, very conservative. If they hear something, they just they'll just go, okay, well that must be it, and I'm just going to take a really really conservative approach without really understanding maybe the science behind it. I, I want to get into just really quickly the one of the key uh, discussion points, and it's about the the balance between risk and quality of life because we're hearing stories of, of residents, you know, obviously quite distressed at some facilities, people in tears and extremely emotional and it and you, you think about trying to get that balance where we know that obviously as part of you know age care it is dealing with the aged and they have a certain period of, of, of life left at, at, at that point and I'm, I'm not trying to um to, to sort of take any emotion out of it. it obviously it's a it's a very um very significant issue but I guess trying to understand how do you, how do you get the balance between that life that you that you've got remaining managing the quality of that and also managing the risk and I I guess it's it's one of those questions. Really, it's it's also a philosophical question when you think about it, because it's not just about aged care. We we make these, uh, you know, we, we make these sort of the, these decisions all the time. You know, when we decide to go to work and we decide to drive in the car, maybe if we go a little bit too fast, we're making a, a, a risk. You know, when we're making our own individual assessment and individual risk based on that, and so we're always trying to work out. Oh, if I go a little bit quicker, I'll get get there a bit quick, a bit you know, a bit sooner. Obviously, maybe I get my work done quicker or something. Then you know, we're all trying to we're all making these risk assessments all the time. So, but I guess specifically in aged care, how, how do you achieve that balance between that that risk and quality of life? Yes, uh, this was the uh, the, the sixty four thousand dollar question. <laughs> yeah. Because no matter which way we went, we knew there was going to be a risk. It's either the well being if we tighten things up. It's the well-being of 
not only just the relative, but of the family as well. Um, we had many um, family members who were distraught to think that we may lock down and they can't see their their um, family, you know, their re the resident or their family member. Um, so you've got both family and the resident involved in that well-being and mental health aspect. And then on the other side, you don't want them to die from, you know, COVID that's introduced into the organisation. So I think the mentor, I'm very fortunate, I'm married to a mental health um, nurse, RN, and uh, we had a lot of conversations about mm. mental health and well-being, and we, we've had these over the years. So for me, it was, it was let's see how far we can go in order to preserve their well-being and mental health. So once we started getting, and, and I, I repeat this again, the facts, you know, like for instance, I, I told all my staff and, and the residents, turn your television off. Don't listen to the, the vast amount of information that's going to come over that television because most of it will be, you know, sensational. Correct. So we went back and we just went data and information, you know, even to the point when government data comes out and it says, oh, we've only had an increase in, you know, eight cases um, this week or say, say something like that. We would, I would make sure that we looked at how many tests were performed. You know, if it was ten thousand tests and you had eight increased, well, that's really good data. But if you had a hundred tests and eight increased, well, you know, that data that doesn't tell you the full picture. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot worse than than having ten thousand tests. You know, that's right. So that's right. We question the data. We journals, we looked at experts, the Department of Health, and that enabled us to make this decision that we will remain open, uh, even despite all and, and, all the sorry. other facilities had closed around us, which really challenges your decisions. It does. It, it probably makes you second-guess things from time to time. Yeah, but it actually made us more aware about the decision that we're making, making sure that we had the right data, and uh, it, it was a good exercise. And look, the others have taken their their action, and that's great. Uh, they've made their decision based on their facts as well. But uh, this is our conclusion. So, so uh, we've already touched on it, but the residents and family members, how how have they responded to COVID nineteen? I'm also I'm particularly curious about the residents because. I guess trying to explain the situation to them as well, that would be a, a no doubt a challenge in that communication. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how in one's your career sometimes you have a moment when you draw on all your resources. I, I used to actually be a lecturer at a tertiary level. So I was, I'm used to bringing complex things into, you know, making them very simple. So I, I did... Uh, presentation to the to the residents, uh, and uh, they they really understood it, and they saw the history of um, of various viruses, coronaviruses, influenza viruses, and that. 
and I gave them very simple but uh, very complex things but delivered it simply and, and they really appreciated that. Um, and that gave them confidence, not only in our decision, but also management, uh, you know, have got this uh, under control, so to speak. Um, yeah, yeah and, and, and the family. So how, and how, what's been the feedback from the families? Oh, unbelievable. Uh, they have been so grateful. Um, I Every time I walk out of my office, there's a, a relative there. They say, oh, thank you so much. This has been um, so good. We could see our, our family, um, you know, their father or their mother or relative. Uh, it's been extremely positive. And, and so I guess one of the things that obviously we've already touched on, and it's interesting, you talked about your lecturing background. Uh, you've also got a background in microbiology. I imagine there isn't many uh, CEOs or general managers of any aged care facilities across the country that would have that type of background. I mean, how do you think uh, this experience, because this is totally a, a completely unique situation. I don't think anyone, uh, any any uh, modern manager has experienced anything like this. So I guess how has your background helped you in the current climate? Mm. Unless you were living around 1918. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was thinking that. <laughs> the H1N1 uh, Spanish flu. <laughs> you know, this is the first uh, pandemic after that one. Uh, look, being qualified as a biomedical microbiologist and also I've, um, I did my thesis in um, bacterial interactions of the upper respiratory tract, which also included an epidemiological component. Yeah, wow. I think that enabled me to be able to sift through all the, the noise and get to the, the real facts and present them to my, my managers as well and for them to see the logic, see the rationale, and then have really good, robust discussions amongst ourselves. And, and that was key because I wanted them to question anything I said because I would question what they would say, but we'd come to these really robust um, uh, decisions as well. So I think, um, yeah, being a microbiologist, I have a, an acute understanding of um, the viral and bacterial world, and I've done a lot of work in that area. So, as, as has COVID nineteen surprised you? Uh, a lot of people say that they have seen this coming. Uh, is, is there something? Is there any aspects of it that surprised you, or um, particularly, obviously, with your background in microbiology? It, it's interesting when I was doing my undergraduate um, program, my uh, degree. Uh, the one of the lecturers there said, "Look, we are due for a pandemic. Um, they they come in cycles, and uh, and that was that was about twenty thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's been building, and we've seen these small episodes, you know, um, uh, episodes, yeah. yeah, epidemics. But uh, this one has just got away on us. I think." All, all the factors came together with flights, um, you know, people movements in the world and so forth. It just all came together. It was bound to happen, um, but, uh, yeah, it's been quite a shake-up for the world. It has. And so uh, on that, I guess, leading on from that question, have you learnt anything particularly interesting from the current climate? 
Oh, it, it's confirmed a few things, but I've also learned a number of things, and that is open and honest communications with both your residents and your staff uh, will always build trust, and with trust builds confidence. Um, uh, the other things that ignorance builds fear, so get that information out there, but don't listen, like, don't go into overload in terms of listening to information. You know, pick the eyes out of what you think are really important announcements um, and just take those and then do your reading. Um, so, you know, overload of information just confuses everyone, I feel. Yes. And one of them was turn the television off. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a, a great piece of advice, I think, for everyone, regardless of the uh, COVID-19 situation. I think a little bit less TV, I think it would do us all good. <laughs> and if you are going to watch a movie, don't look, look at movies like Pandemic or... <laughs> <laughs> I think, yes. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of really good end-of-the-world movies out there. I, I probably wouldn't have... Yeah, Pandemic, I might skip like over like a meteorite here in the earth or something instead. And I, I, I think also a couple of other things I'd like to mention is, you know, in extraordinary times, it re, you, you need extraordinary courage, commitment and resilience. Uh, I think those are the, some of the key words uh, for my staff and how my management team have, uh, have gone through this. And I think emotional intelligence is also it's not only a desired, but it's an essential component when dealing with extraordinary times such as this. It, it's, it's a really good point because the, the thing of it is when, when you end up in situations like this and just on the topic of leadership in general, you, you've, you can't really rely on past experience per se. So you just you can rely on your past skill sets and traits and things that, you know, I guess little points you've learned, but it's about, you know, you really have to, as you said, have that courage to go, okay, well, Sure, I don't. I don't really know exactly what's going to happen in six months or whatever. You can, obviously, no one can predict the future, and and the way and the way this unraveled. I, I think it was um, somewhat unpredictable in the way that it unraveled. I think the pandemic itself was was predictable, and maybe better strategic planning on the federal government's behalf. And but not obviously not just the federal government and the state at the wheel sleep at the wheel. There's all kinds of obviously bodies that were asleep at the wheel on on this one. Um, but I, I guess also that's part of the our economic model, right? Like we've, you know, I guess the way the world economy works, it just doesn't favour resource allocation of these types of things. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, I think maybe it will now. So obviously now that we're consciously aware of it, I just I just hope that uh, we don't do the same thing with other events like climate change and other things that may occur in the long term because we, by nature we are a very short-term species. So we do have to think that long term and I think, you know, thinking there next 10, 20 years and because there will be another pandemic, that's what they've got to prepare for. And it's the same deal whether it be, you know, climate change or any other uh, threats to uh, to human existence. We need to take them seriously. And uh, mm. either way, the uh, the world will, well, I guess whatever you like to describe it philosophically, but uh, Earth will, will, will sort it out one way or the other if you don't. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, nature uh, is a wonderful thing, and it, but it has an incredible power as well. It does, and I, I think we, yeah, I guess it's a philosophical question, but uh, you know, 
there are certain things I, I think we should control what we can control within our limits, obviously, but there will be ultimately things that are well beyond uh, human control and and control in itself is a, is a bit of a myth. And I think that's the thing, you know, we, we do what we can, but I think the assumption that you've got total control over a situation is is a bit of a fallacy. It's just about trying to manage things as, as best as we can. Yep. Uh, so, so, Bruce, I just want to ask one more question because we are a, a technology-based podcast. Is there any th- things that you've thought of in terms of the way that maybe technology might be able to help this type of situation? Um, perhaps maybe a... Uh, uh, maybe a more advanced type of, of monitoring system for residents. Yeah, I uh, I think there's going to be a lot of thought given into um, how we monitor residents um, through uh, technology. It's uh, certainly an area that uh, I'd like to uh, see advance because I think we're, we're relatively primitive at the moment in the way we do things. But look, mm. uh, uh, tech uh, for me, technology has been an absolute must um, here, and it's given us uh, so much more efficiency and effectiveness. And uh, I, I'm always looking for opportunities to uh, advance our our ability to understand and have greater knowledge of of um, what is actually going on. I, I think that goes back to that, just to sort of sum up, I think it goes back to that point where you talked about uh, trying to distort all the all the white noise and try to get a clear picture. One of the things that you can do with technology is you can, you know, gather, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of different data points and then, then you can go, okay, let's just refine that down to a to a single page or to a single report and, and just create a clear picture. And I think that's, if we talk about uh, this particular situation, one of the things that might be potential from all this is to be able to do something like that where we can can combine all kinds of data sets, whether it be, uh, you know, I mean, monitoring people's temperatures, people's mental, mental well-being and all these things, and you could then create simple reports to sort of feed in and go, okay, here's the information, allow you to make those more educated decisions. I think maybe something like that, maybe the next sort of, you know, generation in technology where we go beyond just going, okay, does someone need some help or not? We go, okay, well, let's look at the broader picture of the resident utilizing technology, bring all those data sets together and create a, a nice a single page to understand, uh, I guess, the risk and then also understand uh, what we can do to help those those residents. Yeah. The, the key I've found, like I've developed a little bit of software in my life, but uh, the, the, the key is to have something complex and to be able to present it simple. So many times I've seen uh, software and that they have all the bells and whistles and it just confuses you in the end. It's got to be simple to you, simple to access, but it's got to crunch really you know, a lot of data in the back in order to give you that piece of information that's going to be really relevant and that you can make a difference to uh, other people's lives. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great way to, to sum it up. And that's, again, that's what we're all here about to improve ultimately the lives and the quality of life of the residents. Uh, Bruce, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time this morning. That's all right. I'll send you the bill. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll shoot it out via PR. So uh, we, we will, I think this is a, you know, it's been a really insightful podcast. And uh, I, I think, you know, there's definitely some some interesting lessons to uh, to be learned, I think. And I think some facilities may 
pick up some ideas and I think, you know, harping on that, uh, going on about the scientific approach and these bits and pieces, I, I think, you know, really it's it's quite a, uh, it, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it's not completely, lo- it's very logical, but it, again, it's it's about taking that step back and, and just, just looking at it from a strategic point of view and not getting wrapped up in, you know, what you see and read on t- here on TV and just taking a very honest, logical, managed approach. And I think that's been a great success there for St. Andrews. So, yeah. Again, yeah, no, thank you for the time and, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. All right, that was uh, Bruce Tuwali from St. Andrews Ballina. Uh, so that was the uh, Tech Factor. I'm Ben. And I'm Sam. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>